Hey, what's going on guys? Kevin Allen is here and today we have the author of this awesome book. We got the author of this book here, uh, Baba and the Crew, a true story of a single black father's journey to redemption. Uh, I went to school with Mr. Davis's daughter and my older brother actually went to school with uh, one of his sons and yeah, this episode was such a delight to, to talk to to Mr. Davis. I used to play basketball with him uh, when I was in college actually and uh, you know I remember him on the court with us and stuff and that was just that was inspiring for me at the time. I didn't realize how impactful that was but the fact that you know he's still doing doing his thing on the court was was pretty pretty powerful stuff now that I that I think about it but yeah this conversation we talked about the book we talked about his role as an Africana uh, professor at Rutgers University and sort of his background what got him there and just how impactful that role is for him uh, we also talked about his favorite musical artists uh, you know my normal questions the billboard all that kind of stuff so definitely you guys are gonna enjoy this one if this is your first time on the channel consider hitting the like button I'm in a great mood the conversation was really good I feel really excited for you guys to check it out so without further ado here's the episode oh one more thing um, today is November 4th and uh, November 4th the day after the election uh, let me just go ahead and check real quick to see what the numbers are looking like because I'm kind of curious about that to see if the numbers changed. Let's just go on Google and type in election map. Uh, it looks like it's changed a little bit. Yeah, it sure has. It's changed a bit. Wow. Okay. So we're, we're it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's, yeah. Let's see how this goes. 248 to 214. Almost there. All right. Biden's about to get in there and we're about to make some changes. Hopefully with the Senate as well. We split that right down the middle. Holla at your boy. Kevin's here. We out. Peace. Later. See you later. Let's go. There he is. Hey, sir. How are you? Well, better now that I see you. How are you? I'm man. I'm doing really good, man. I was uh, since since we spoke last week, I was just really just amped up, man, for this episode, you know, to be able to chat with you and talk about this thing. Talk Absolutely. about life, whatever we want to talk about. Just have a nice conversation. So I'm really, really looking forward to it, man. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, Kevin. Congratulations on your platform, man. Hey, man. Much love on that. Definitely appreciate that. So how are you doing today? It's been an interesting day. The um, I had to get my annual physical to make sure mm -hmm. that I'm physically well. Smart. And then I went to um, Source of Knowledge Bookstore in Newark. That's the only bookstore right now that has a copy, that has copies of the book. Ah. So I went to see how, you know, the sales were going. Okay, okay. And then uh, went outside and took a walk, man, and just um, meditated on the um, election circumstance. I wanted to start and just talk about how you and I either met or more specifically the time that we really got to know each other during that, you know what I'm, where I'm going with this, that uh, when I was in college, I was playing right. basketball together. And looking right. back on that, you know, I I'm just like, First of all, I'm I struggle a little bit and I'm I'm 33 right now. So like I'm kind of semi-retired, you know, from playing. I don't really get out there too much anymore. And stuff, Come on, but you're too young to be retired, man. That's exactly what I'm still playing, you know, at the top of this game, man. At 30, what, 35? 
Yeah, but he got he got a million dollar budget to work on his body every year. I said, man, if I had if I had that that chamber that he has in the house where he can go in there every day and just rejuvenate his body, I think I'll be good to go. <laughs> but we had some great times, man. I remember you being just real a court general. Well, it comes with age, bro. You know, I've been out there for a little while playing, and uh, you know, I would be able to run as fast and jump as high, but I still understand how the game works. So. No, that's right. That's right. You got to slow it down a little bit. You got to do what works for you. Whatever it takes to make the team win, that's it, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I haven't played since March. I mean, since the pandemic hit. Okay. Uh, the gyms were closed. Every now and then I still go and shoot around and hope one day that, you know, when this uh, pandemic clears up, that I'll be able to get back out there. But right now, it's like, hey, I mean, you know, so at the new Y in Piscataway, um, I shoot around over there sometimes. In fact, I'll be over there either later this week or next week. And so just hope to have the opportunity to, because, like, I do other exercises, but when you play basketball, you have to play at the pace of the game. Yeah. And sure. so when you're jogging yourself or lifting weights, other things, you pretty much do your own pace. Basketball, since the team sport requires you to play at the pace of the game. That's right. And most times when we're exercising, we do it individually as opposed to collectively. And so, you know, since it's a collective endeavor, then um, – and then, you know, the um, Arthur Ashe. I don't know if you've ever read Arthur Ashe's book. Mm-mm. heard of him but haven't met called um days of grace arthur ash was the first brother to win you know the u.s open mm-hmm. and um and in fact he won wimbledon he won a bunch of different ones and arthur ash started playing in the 1960s so you know discrimination all that stuff was still happening so when he would go to the south they would have places for him to stay families for him to stay with you know mm-hmm. so comparable to what was in the green book although the movie didn't really capture what the green book was really like but you know we had places where people would go to try to avoid some of the issues of racism. Mm-hmm. But Arthur Ashe, <clears throat> unfortunately, got a blood transfusion and contracted AIDS. Mm. And so he wrote a book called Days of Grace. And in there, he wrote a letter to his daughter called My Dear Kamara. Mm-hmm. And so he knew that he was not going to live long enough to raise his daughter. And uh, mm-hmm. so there were certain things that he wanted to make sure he could share with her as she of age mm. and one of the things that he hoped for her was that she would have a sport for life and so all of us bro you know on a day like today um in which some people may be comfortable with how the election came out i'm certainly not comfortable how it came out mm-hmm. but um on a day like today and there's other times in our lives we're going to need to do something that's going to help us to maintain our balance and so um Basketball was one of the things that would kind of take my mind off of some of the crazy stuff happening in the world. So, um, right, man. so I'm optimistic and hopeful that um, <clears throat> I don't know how long it's going to take before this COVID thing is under control. Right. But when it is, then uh, I want to get back out there. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. When you say basketball and having that as a as a thing that you do, that I'm sure you could relate. When you know you're going to have a chance to play with some friends, with some, you know, whomever is at the court and whatever you're going through that day leading up into being able to play, it's like it doesn't matter because you know that when you're on the court, it's like the most stress relieving thing because you're not thinking about any other stresses or anything else going on. You're just enjoying yourself. Right. And that's when I when I, I had a back injury from playing, let's see, three, two or three years ago on the day before the 4th of July. So July 3rd, wow. I was playing and uh just normal normal game i think three on three half court and i felt a pain from just a normal move that i was doing i ended up herniating my disc 
Mm. And I was, it was the most excru- excruciating pain that I've ever experienced in my life from that moment wow. um, for several weeks before ultimately deciding to get, uh, actually get the surgery to remove the piece that was herniating. Mm-hmm. And it's much better now, thank God. But I remember like realizing once I was recovering and stuff like that, and I didn't have basketball to kind of have as that outlet anymore. Right. Was, I realized in that time, just how significant having something in mm-hmm. your life that that you that you could call like your favorite thing to do that you always right. are ready to do and excited for is a blessing to have that. I don't think I don't know if everyone has it or knows what that is for them, but if you do, it's a big deal. It is. I mean, so people who run marathons and stuff like that, you know, to, to us running 26 miles may seem bizarre, but to people who are running when those endorphins kick in at mile 18, 19, whatever that is, and they get mm-hmm. that runner's high, then you know it's like for a musician who's playing and, you know, he hits that certain note and then it's like, you know, so hopefully people have something, man, that will um, help them to get through whatever issues and challenges that they face and help, you know, to keep that mental and physical balance that we all need to be able to operate in, in, the, in the world in a healthy way. So mm-hmm. Africana studies, and I want to talk a little bit about how long you have you had that role at Rutgers? And as someone, I know we spoke a little bit about this before, but as someone who has really uh, strong goals and strong desire, I don't like using the word desires, but someone who really sees himself teaching or working at the college level, working with that college student, um, I want to pick your brain a little bit, quite frankly, to see you know what that experience is like for you, and especially being having an opportunity to teach something that I know that you're passionate about um, has to magnify that to like a whole nother level. Being able to share your knowledge with the next generation. So tell me a little bit about like how you got started, and just how's that experience for you on the day to day. It's um it's a profound blessing, and the universe works in in amazing ways. And so I was an Africana Studies major in undergraduate school. And I was one of the earliest Africana Studies graduates from Rutgers. Mm-hmm. And people used to ask me, you know, well, what are you going to do when you graduate? How are you going to get a job? <clears throat> but at the time, that really didn't, I really wasn't concerned about. Mm-hmm. And so when I went to Rutgers, it was predominantly white and very hostile. And so the percentage and the number of African-American students was very small. And so um, I grew up in Plainfield. And so being a very diverse community, then, you know, I'm used to being in classes with people from all different kinds of groups. Mm-hmm. And at, in high school, we used to go to parties on Rutgers campus. So I'm seeing all these African-American students there. But when I get there, there are very few African-American students in class. And so, um, so when I graduated from Rutgers, well, while I was a student, I used to have, you know, work study jobs, one of which was working in the admissions office. And so I used to go with people in the admissions office to do recruitment to encourage students. I was a student ambassador to come to Rutgers. Mm-hmm. So after I graduate, two of my mentors got a job for me. And so then that's how I started working at Rutgers as an employee. <clears throat> then I went, I finished my master's, <clears throat> excuse me, I finished my master's. And then, uh, you know, my first actual teaching job was at Rutgers North. Mm-hmm. I was a counselor at the EOF program and we used to do, um, we used to have a seminar, a freshman seminar class. And so mm-hmm. I was teaching study skills and time management and goal setting, all the different things that would help a student to be successful. And I really 
enjoyed, you know, having that role of being a teacher. Mm-hmm. And um, so then, nine, let me see, it was 2008, my mother passed away. And um, so I was going to have lunch. Well, let me, let me, the other part of the backstory. So I've done African-American history programs and Kwanzaa celebrations, all different kinds of speaking events on Rutgers campus. And so I was going to lunch with both my daughters and um, the chair of the African mm-hmm. Studies Department at the time, Professor Tate, was, we were going to what we said, Mercatus. Unfortunately, Mercatus is closed now. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen you on campus a lot of times, would you like to teach? Oh, absolutely, you know. And um, she wanted me to start that September. This was like either late July or early August, you know. So my mother had just passed. Mm. I'm emotionally a wreck. And I didn't have any kind of prep time. And so, but I said, you know, I, I can't start in September, but I'd like to start in January. And so January 2009 is when um, when I actually started teaching. My first class, I had over 100 students in the class. <laughs> Were you nervous? Um, no, not really. Um, because, you know, I've spoken in front of a lot of various size audiences and things yeah. like that. And I put a lot of effort into, I spent months revising the, the syllabus mm-hmm. and looking at how I wanted to, the issues I wanted to cover and all those kind of things. So I was yeah. very comfortable with the material. And um, the only the only disadvantage of a class that size is that then students try to hide. They don't want to speak. Yeah. And so, you know, and I, you know, can certainly lecture, but I'm more interested in engaging in conversation. Sure. And so, um, you know, so there are a few students, you know, who'd be brave enough to speak in the class of a hundred, but, um, you know, but it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And so um, eventually, you know, we cut the class size down so that then it could be a more conversational environment. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've had former students that have done some incredible things, some incredible things, you know, graduate school, law school, medical school, mm. NFL, you know, just all kind of, all kind of accomplishments. One of the, um, if you can survive an environment like Rutgers, mm-hmm. then and maintain your your fire, maintain your clarity, maintain your motivation to want to contribute something, you've been you know well prepared for whatever other stage that people want to um, people want to operate on. Mm-hmm. And so, but in between the time that I graduated to the time I started teaching, there was a lot of self study. And so in addition to what was on the syllabus, then some of the things that I had learned, I had traveled to Africa a few times already. Mm-hmm. So I was, I had traveled to Cuba. I had traveled to different places, to Jamaica, you know, so I, there were a bunch of different places I had already been mm-hmm. before. So that then understanding, you know, what I learned from my classes, what I learned through self-study from the different organizations and trips that I had been on, I was definitely ready. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you want to teach at the college level, you know, the work that you've, that you've done, the platform with the tutoring and things like that would certainly lend itself for you to be able to get into the classroom and actually be able to connect with the students. It's, um, I mean, I've, I've worked at college universities my whole career. Right. And so the, the interesting and challenging part of it is the fact that, you know, it's an environment which people have the ability mm-hmm and think that they want to succeed. But then sometimes you will find students who choose to fail. That they just, I have several students who are certainly smart enough 
and whether they had whatever their personal issues were, they just could not and did not put the work in. And so it's like, um, I'm not happy about the fact that you're not successful. Yeah. But I'm really clear the fact that this is what you chose. And so I think that because sometimes students think that because of the Africana Studies course that you're supposed to be able to, quote unquote, get over. Mm-hmm. Bro, <laughs> and I told this at the students from the first day, yeah. when I come to class, your time and my time are valuable. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to come to class prepared every period. I want you to come to class prepared every period. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're going to get as much out of this class you put into it. And so I'm sure with your students now that there are going to be students who may be smart enough but distracted. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and how do we help people to realize, you know, those distractions are going to help you in this environment. And hopefully you will be able to put those distractions on hold long enough to concentrate on what you need to do while you're in class. Powerful. I mean, when you when you talk about the you, you mentioned EOF, the, that that was your first role at Rutgers. I was an EOF student at Rutgers. Uh-huh. My first role when I was working admissions was to recruit EOF students to come to Rutgers. EOF. Okay. Then I worked in EOF Central, the Central Administration. I really liked that too much. You know, you're doing all coordination between admissions, financial aid, all the various offices to get all the. And it's an important role, but I just didn't really enjoy it because I have any student contact. Mm-hmm. When I mm-hmm. got to EOF at Rutgers in Newark, and mm-hmm. I'm actually working with the students and helping them to get through some of the issues that they face and actually doing these group group counseling seminars, I was like, oh, this is definitely the path mm-hmm. that I need to be on. And that's the thing. What, what, what resonates with me to me when you say that is that you've had these different roles. And when you were as, as an EOF counselor and, and having a, a chance to do different things in that role, but you mentioned specifically hosting workshops on academic success and these types of things, you were, it was pretty clear to you pretty early on that this is like the, the highlight of all the different job functions that you have. And then, you know, as, as fate would have it, uh, the opportunity presented itself, like you mentioned, you know, being seen on campus and stuff. And that's, I think that's what it's all about. It's like, just because you're in a role, and I can totally relate to you when you, the, the exact thing that you actually said just now about um, the, the first role that you had that you said you didn't like, but you said you knew that it was an important role. My very mm-hmm. first job at uh, internship at Verizon was very much that position, an alarm tester. Every day we're doing the same exact thing, repetitive, not using any of these engineering concepts that I learned about. But right. man, if the job, if we made a little mistake, that could that could be a significant, you know, loss of the company. So mm-hmm. I remember always saying that on interviews, I would always, you know, be direct and straight up, like, you know, it wasn't the right job for me at the time, but it put my foot in the door, and I acknowledged, you know, the importance of it. So I can totally relate to that, for sure. I'm I'm really, uh, you know, we're gonna get into the book shortly in, in just a minute, actually, because I. I What's fascinating about having you on today is that, you know, we talked about a little bit about Rutgers, we talked about basketball to start with, and then we talked about Rutgers and your role there and how much you enjoy it. And, you know, I've shared and expressed, you know, my interest in in kind of making my way there eventually. And when we get into talking about this book here, uh, first of all, it's an amazing book. And Second of all, the idea about writing a memoir, writing a book, I want to start actually right off. I was, I was saying we're going to do it later. I want to jump into it right now, actually. I want to talk to you about like, at what point did you uh, think about or realize or know that you wanted to write 
a book like this? How long, how many years back was this thought in your mind? Oh, easily more than 10. Um, and so the, the negative conversation about African-American men in general and African-American fathers in particular. And so since I was raising four children myself, and, you know, whenever we would go places, people are always amazed that, you know, I was raising them alone. And um, so people would always ask me, you know, at different times, you know, you should write about this, you should write about this. And different people would be, you know, have their books out and, you know, all that kind of stuff. People say, well, you know, how come you not, how come you don't have a book out? Mm. And, um, and so, you know, I definitely consistent with, you know, from an Afrocentric perspective and, you know, to the negative stereotypes that are applied to, and I, and I, you know, I tell people this all the time, you know, that when I'm walking down the street with sneakers and jeans on, very few people are going to think they're a college professor. That's not what they're going to think. Mm -hmm. And so particularly with locks, then, you know, first thing is that, hey, you know, you're getting high. And I've had people all the time. Yo, man, I got some, I got some. Bro, I don't partake. Yeah. But I hope that you enjoy, right? And so that's the first thing that, you know, first stereotype that comes about who I, how I appear. Right. And so, um, you know, so in fact, when my children were much younger, I had wanted to wear locks. So one of my trips, I went to Egypt, one of our greatest ancestors, Dr. Ben, I had the privilege of going with Dr. Ben to Egypt over 30 years ago. Mm. When I got to Egypt, when you get to the museums, they have lock wigs that the and that the pharaohs used to wear i was like whoa man, yeah. so everybody thinks locks started in jamaica no 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 locks go back thousands of years and so wow. i was like oh yeah i bet so at some point i'm going to put my locks in mm -hmm. but conscious of you know how the teachers and you know the, the paradox that we face and i'm sure as an educator you experience this is the mismatch between the student population and the teaching population mm. and so the student population may be largely African-American, like Latinx, Asian, but the teachers are predominantly white and predominantly female. Mm. And so when we first started, my children were much younger, then um, I was conscious of the fact that, you know, me showing up without their mother would create a certain kind of perception in the teacher's mind. And even though, you know, I'm educated and I used to wear a certain tie to work and all that kind of stuff, and I would make sure that I wore that when I went to the teacher conferences, but it was also clear that if I was showing up with locks, that I would have to fight through more stereotypes than I would normally have to fight through. Mm -hmm. So I waited. I waited. And, um, you know, once my children, you know, unfortunately for me, you know, for all of us, they did very well in school. So then after a while, instead of the teachers having a negative stereotype, they were requesting my children to be in their classes. I bet. Mm -hmm. So now I can wear my locks and not have the trepidation that I have to try to clarify for people the fact that, I don't want you judging my child based on my hairstyle. Mm -hmm. So parents have to take a lot of factors into consideration about what they do, how they function. And then for teachers in particular, because, you know, teachers talk, this child's doing well, this child's not doing well, blah, blah, blah. The parents aren't really coming in. They're not paying attention. Or you hear all of this chatter that teachers have among themselves about, about the children. So once I was clear that our conversation was the way that I needed it to be, mm -hmm. now I can just come as I... You know, and there's some people who, when they go for a job interview, they may want to wear their hair a certain way, but that's the way till they get into the job, get situated, if they get tenure or if they have some seniority, yeah. then they can wear their hair. 
I mean, so with the Crown Act, it just got passed. You know, we're not supposed to be discriminated against based on hairstyle, mm-hmm. but whether or not that is actually the case, right? Right? There's, you, someone can say you don't get the job. You don't have to say because of your hairstyle, but you know, in their mind, they could have decided you don't know, get the job because of your mm-hmm. hairstyle. That's a great point. So you say easily ten years ago, and you hear from many people who, of course all vast majority or even all of them you know have your they're, they're telling you that because they strongly believe that you should they feel like they feel like your story is one that when you're living your story sometimes it's not easy to realize how special i think it is absolutely um, other people see it and people who know you and people who don't necessarily know you and they hear about it and they see it it's it kind of be, helps us kind of understand and appreciate, you know, these significant milestones, significant accomplishments that we've had in our lives. So from the moment that people started sharing that with you 10 years ago, from that moment, you start thinking, you're like, okay, you know, you, you, at that point, I'm sure you had a significant amount of experiences that could more than uh, fill a powerful story, but you decided to kind of take your time in the process and maybe start writing some of that stuff while still chronicling the current stuff with the mindset of writing a book? Is that kind of how, how that went? Um, yes. And so and there's a point that I forgot to raise. So when we first moved out here, um, maybe we were here for two years. And um, so I moved our family to Piscataway from Newark. And when I was working at Rutgers Newark, I left Rutgers Newark, went to work at NYU. And then... Um, I took a job at the Middlesex County College. And so I moved from Newark to Piscataway. And I wanted to be, I was working in New Brunswick and I wanted to be close to where my children were going to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they were three, five, seven, and nine <clears throat> when this journey started, which is one of the reasons that people felt that, you know, it was A, that they were four, B, they were so young. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but about two years after we got here, a friend of mine, um, the Reading Rainbow staff was looking for a family to interview to be on the Reading Rainbow segment. Mm -hmm. And it was about fathers. Mm -hmm. And so the Reading Rainbow folks came to our house and you know, it's still up there. It's called Always My Dad on Reading Rainbow. Mm -hmm. And and so the crew may have been five and seven and nine, something like that at the time, the Reading Rainbow thing happened. So it was around, it was over 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And, um, And it was amazing, you know, people all over the country, you know, hey man, I saw you read Rainbow, blah 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 blah. <laughs> it was like, wow. Right, right. Probably, like, wow, this is amazing, man. You know, to see you read Rainbow with all these children. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, they probably like looked, had to look twice. Like, wait a second, absolutely. That's funny. And so, um, so as you know, they reach certain milestones, and you know, things start to happen. Then I had always hoped that there would be a sequel. You know what's happening with these children now, mm-hmm. and um, and I'm still hoping that there will be at least some you know television segment would be on. Hey, we show the reading rainbow segment. I want y'all to meet these these same children that you saw 20 oh, plus years man. ago today. How, that's what right? I'm talking about. Yeah, right. Yeah. And um, and so so as I was contemplating that. And there's a book. They made a book out of Reading Rainbow on that segment that we're in, right? So I'm mm-hmm. like, well, we already got documented Reading Rainbow book, but it doesn't really say much about us. 
And so, um, and I mean, you know, part of the part of the challenge that we face as a community is the fact that there are not enough of us that are college educated. Right. And yeah. so, and particularly, there's not enough college educated African American men. And so, you know, the fact that fortunately all of them graduated, then you know, in in a certain way, we defied the odds. And so I was highly motivated around the fact that, um, you know, we, you know, were able to move through all the different challenges and you know, emotional, financial, all different things that you have to face in order to reach certain milestones, but the fact that we did. And so, um, so to me, it was, I would, it, it would have not have been a complete circumstance for me not to write it mm-hmm. and to share the fact that, you know, just despite all the stereotypes and crazy things that you have to go through. But at some point, you know, because I don't know if you have any children yet, but when you do, there's going to be blessings and challenges right from the start. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and we, we can't always anticipate what they're going to be. There are going to be things that are going to happen that we would never expect to happen. Mm-hmm. There'll be things that have happened that we're just like, you know, grateful that it turned out the way that it did. Mm-hmm. But um, so I was, you know, I was highly motivated to, uh, to share the fact that, uh, you know, we got through and that's why the, the, you know, Baba's journey to redemption, because when you get to a certain point, then it's the redemptive part of parenting. When your children learn the lessons that you want them to learn, mm. you actually see them apply the things that you've always hoped that they would. Mm-hmm. And they have some talent. And I mean, and all children have various forms of talent. And when they honor themselves and, and utilize their talent, so I'm sure your parents are really proud, man. You know, so if you went to engineering and figured out that, you know, that that wasn't necessarily was touching your spirit the way that it should be touched. And then you find that you can touch the lives of young people. And then by touching their lives, that kind of adds some energy and fulfillment to you, to your personal experience, Mm -hmm. personally and professionally. Right. I mean, because then with some of the children, you may be the only African-American male they're going to see. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and so then you're representing not just yourself as a teacher, but you're also representing African-American men in, in a sense that for them would be, I had a, a black male teacher who was really on point that really motivated mm-hmm. and encouraged me. And so it helped to change the perception about how certain people see African-American men in general. Every conversation so far has been so impactful and just in just such different ways, right? Like in this particular one here, there's so much that I'm, I'm already learning and I'm just thinking about how, uh, how when this reaches people for to be able to kind of impact them positively and have them feel inspired and have them have something that's that's a, a feel good type of a conversation which is what it's what it's all about for me in this show so so far i wanted to just say thank you for for hopping on this has definitely been incre- incredible so far and to piggyback on that point that you just made that that's a extremely powerful point you just made about uh potentially me being the only black person in the lives of some of the students that, that I work with. And that's that's something, you know, I'm I'm blessed that I that that was not something that went into my consideration in terms of me saying, I want this job, but I'm not gonna take it because of the lack of diversity there. Um what, what I have wanted more in? say it again. What district do you work in? Uh Princeton Charter School. Okay. Princeton Charter School, yeah, yeah. So very much lack of diversity on the on the faculty side. I'm the only African American mm-hmm. faculty member in the entire school. Um, and then the students, it's 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 somewhat diverse, but not. It's kind of what you would expect, you know. I think right. Princeton to be. 
Um, but what I so in an ideal world, for sure, I want I would like uh, I would like a lot more diversity in the faculty and the students. But I do think there's a lot of value in exactly what you just said. And I didn't realize that my first couple weeks or maybe even months in the school. But certainly once I started to get my footing and understanding the process and really connecting with students and, and just the way of, you know, and I, I know you can relate being you know, 100% yourself in front of the students, like that makes probably, um, it's, I was gonna say it's ampli probably amplified to the college student, but I would say even in fifth, my fifth graders all the way up to college, like if they sense that you're genuine and that you care about them, that's like 90% of what's required, right? And Absolutely. once that's there, then it's like, then we're, then we're on the same side. Now, now we can kind of work through whatever these challenges that are going on together. And that that's the element that I, maybe appreciate the most is that it doesn't, that that side for me, I'm blessed that that does not take really any effort for me to be myself. It shouldn't it doesn't take effort right. for anyone to be themselves. But quite frankly, we know that everyone's normal personality is is not necessarily gonna jive well with, you know, with everyone else. And, you know, for me, from what I've learned over time, which has never been easy for me to, to say, I, I've, I've been challenged over the years to kind of, to say positive things, have positive affirmations about myself mm -hmm. until more recently where, where I can say that confidently. I can say that in my past several years in connecting with people and having conversations, I, I know what those conversations mean to me for sure, but I also know what they mean to the other person. And right. that's a powerful thing to, to not uh, lose sight of, I think, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's okay to think about this. I mean, because a, only 2% of all the teachers in the country are black. And so I didn't know that black males, I'm sorry, black males, 2% of the okay. teachers in the country are black males. Mm -hmm. And of the black males that are teachers, most or very few are in academic areas. And so the fact that you're teaching math, so it kind of is contrary to the idea that, you know, quote unquote, we can't do math. Mm. And so, and then second, the, um, I'm hoping that you watched the movie Stand and Deliver. Did you ever watch the documentary Stand and Deliver? I don't think so. No. Is that oh, Kevin, you got to watch this, bro. I have to it's check. It's about it. Latino community and um, a teacher who helps students that weren't doing well. And then when he comes in, he helps their self-esteem. And so then they do so well that people think that they're cheating. And uh, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal documentary. Okay. And That's so, um, you know, so there are going to be times in which people are going to, as I said, have stereotypes about us for, I mean, because if you think about it, we don't control the images of how we're projected. We don't control enough media. And so the media controls the images and those images reinforce negative things that most people think when they see us. And so, yeah. so in fact, that when Ava DuVernay named that, when they see us, it's not just for the Central Park Five, bro. That's for all of us. When they see us, there are certain stereotypes that people form about us. Mm -hmm. And so for the students there, man, to see you and for the faculty to see you as a young brother teaching math, to find all the stereotypes, having formed very powerful connections with those students, man, that, mm -hmm. I mean, your book, bro, at some point needs to come out, in fact. And so there's a brother from a couple of brothers that wrote books about being in, you know, the teaching circumstance and how not to fall victim to some of the negative stereotypes that people have and stuff. Can't think of the names of right now, but there's two of them mm. that, um, oh man, I'm trying to think of the name of the book now, man. It's really, mm. because it's about for people who are teaching in whatever environment, 
how to not fall victim to some of the crazy stuff that people say. But it's um, wow. uh, when I think of it, I'll I'll let you know. But I can't yeah. think of the name right now. But it's really, really, you know, really on point. Really on. Man, that is yeah. That that's that's inspiring to hear. I appreciate those words. And you know, part of like when I heard about this book here, and part of what what got me so excited about it was was that this is someone that I know who wrote a book. Someone, someone that I know and someone that I only know loosely about the accomplishments. Like I knew high level, right? High level stuff. And now being it and, and knowing that, just like you said, knowing that I have a, an absolute goal, uh, you know, to eventually also write a book and just thinking about when and timing and all these different things and, and, and what, what should it be on everything or should it be fixate, fixed on one thing? kind of thinking through these things, it was just really exciting to me to, um, yeah, to have a chance to, to learn a little bit about that story, like how it all happened, you know, really powerful stuff. It's, um, and I mean, I think so, because the universe works the way it works, bro. And so fortunately, um, I was on a trip and um, I just started writing you know, and, um, you know, I was like, wow, you know, let me, I got like 20, 30 pages down. Mm. And um, <laughs> I said it, to, you know, I said it to a few folks and they said like, no, man, this, this, no, 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 no. You got a lot of work to do to get this into a book. Like, you need to be clear. I got you. And, um, wow. and so, you know, so you got to have thick skin first, right? Yes. So whatever it is that you intend to do, got to be have some thick skin because people are going to be honest with you they're going to tell you yeah no that's really you know that ain't really going to get it done yeah and then trying to you know use that funnel and bring it down to where it makes sense yeah because you know um i start with my parents right and so since neither of my parents graduated from high school and my mother eventually went back and got a ged but my father would read multiple newspapers every day and pay a lot of attention to world affairs. My father served in World War II. And so, you know, so he was had experienced racism directly. And my mother was very dark skinned. And so she got discriminated against by white folks and quote unquote light skinned, as y'all say, black folks. Mm -hmm. And so she raised us all to be really conscientious about our culture and our heritage. Mm -hmm. And my mother grew a fro in the 1960s, had a fro. Nice. I grew my first row in the 1960s. And so um, so there'll be different family or societal influences that are going to shape how we grow up. And so, you know, and then how do we learn how to pull those things into it? How did it shape who we become? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so then when I thought about it, you know, the fact that I went to college, graduated, and then ended up working at college universities for my career, then, um, you know, that's why I... I thank the EOF program because, you know, it really helps to, to lay a ground, the foundation for ending generational poverty. And so higher education is the vehicle to end generational poverty. And so when Biden wins this election, then, you know, hopefully we'll get a 50-50 split in the Senate mm -hmm. so that then he could be able to get some of his legislative agenda through. But one of the things that we have to do is that we have all different kinds of rights. We have the right to vote, even though people are trying to use voter suppression to stop that. Mm. We have a lot of different rights, but the thing that we don't have is economic parity. And so mm. at some point, 
you know, and sadly, some of the hip hop artists, Negroes got confused about this quote unquote platinum plan, which was really a page and a half versus the Biden plan, which is 20 plus pages. And it lays out different steps that need to happen economically in order for our, ourselves individually of our community to be raised. That is the next frontier. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the wealth gap, when you look at the disparity of income, when you look at the unemployment rate, when you look at the education gap. So at some point, recognizing all the different areas in which we really need to have some better access and some better outcomes, mm -hmm. that to me is, is the, the, what we're focused on now. So from a numerical perspective, I don't know if you, you know, um, given the populations that you work with, but at some point when we actually look at the graphs of the disparity where we are economic, mm -hmm. it's just massive. It's just absolutely massive. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for the first time in the history of the country, there's been a discussion about reparations. And so, you know, we really need to think about, and some Negroes are confused about it. We're the only group that worked for several hundred years and never got any kind of redress. Mm. And so, and while there may be individual checks, but I'm more interested in institutional solutions. Yeah. So at the end of World War II, the U.S. invested billions of dollars in rebuilding Europe as a Marshall Plan. We need a Marshall Plan for the communities where we live to improve the infrastructure, the schools. I mean, you know, people talk about how we are disproportionately impacted by COVID. It happens because of the fact that we live in communities with a lot of pollution. So we have asthma. We live in food deserts. So we're not eating healthy. And so then we have diabetes, cholesterol, all that kind of stuff. So when COVID hits, it disproportionately affects us. Right. We're the frontline workers. And so we're in the grocery stores and all that kind of stuff. And so then we have greater exposure. So people make it seem like it's a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. I mean, you know, it's a function of a lack of financial of a financial base. Most people who are frontline workers can't work from home. Right. You have to be in, right? You got to be at your job. And so yep. and if you get too much exposure sooner or later, even with a mask on, you know, there's something subject to happen to you. So our economic basis is not what it should be. And I'm hoping that when Biden wins, if we get a 50-50 split in the Senate and then Kamala Harris would be the deciding vote, we can actually see some legislation that would help to change some of this. Yeah. And I like I like the when when word, you know. You, you, oh, yeah, bro. It's, it's no doubt. Yeah, it's going to happen. Despite yeah. all of the shenanigans, it's going to happen. That's 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 the word choice there for sure. Yeah. Man, um, here's a question for you. So if you have a chance, if you had a chance to 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 put a billboard up. Put a billboard up somewhere and it could say anything you want on it uh what do, what do you think that billboard would say um it would say honor yourself and build your legacy mm -hmm. legacy mm -hmm. legacy all of us are gonna leave a legacy and the question is and i it, when i was writing the book that's when it became clear to me that my children are going to be my greatest legacy mm -hmm. and so um unlike Malcolm, Mandela, King, different people who chose their community work over their family work. Mm. Whatever work I was doing at the job, whatever work I was doing in the community, but I'm concentrated the most on raising my children mm -hmm. because no matter whatever else happened, whatever job I have, anything else, my children was going to be connected. So I need to make sure that they were in a safe space physically and emotionally and all mm. other fronts. And so they're going to be my greatest legacy. And so, um, and all of us are going to leave a legacy. And so I, I hope that my parents see me and my sisters and brothers as their greatest legacy. Mm -hmm. You have children at some point, 
I don't know if Einstein had children, but you know, his legacy was the fact that he was a genius and able to, you know, come up with all these different kinds of theories, right? So, but some of us, we're not going to have a legacy like that, that our children are going to be our legacy. And so I really, in choosing the title of the book, I was like, yeah, that's, um, you know, it's redemptive. Mm -hmm. Name of my of my company is babaslegacy.com. Nice. Baba is a Swahili word for father. Uh -huh. Other languages in addition to Swahili. And um, and so that's what my children call me. My children call me Baba. Right. My father named my children the crew. So that's how the title of the book came about. Baba and the crew, true story to redemption. Yeah. And so at this point, you know, I've seen my children excel, seen them fall down and get back up. And so, you know, that's the reductive part of it to see that, you know, the things that you've taught them that they actually can embrace it and live it. Mm -hmm. Wow. I like that. I like that a lot. Powerful words. Changing gears a little bit. I want to know if you have a chance to, I want to know a little bit about you and, and the type of music you like. So if you have a chance to go to a dream concert of yours, where you have five artists that are performing living or dead. So of all time, which five artists do you think you're going to want at your dream concert? Oh, that's easy. Stevie nice. Wonder, Earth with the Fire, Bob Marley. Uh, that's three, right? I got to get two more. Probably Grover Washington. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I should get a sister there. Oh, Aretha Franklin. Nice. Wow. It's five legends, huh? Oh, absolutely. Got to go with the legends. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Wait, so have, absolutely. You, have you seen any of them in concert? Of course, oh. I've seen Earth, Wind, and Fire multiple times. Right, okay. I've seen Grover. I've seen Stevie multiple times. Wow! Unfortunately, Bob passed before I had a chance to see him. Okay, and I saw Aretha a long time ago. Okay, but only once. Wow! Only I've seen once. I've seen uh, out of out of everyone you mentioned, I've seen Earth, Wind, and Fire one time. They did a, a concert with Chicago at MSG. And mm -hmm. so my mom, myself, and my sister, us three went there okay. maybe, I don't know, 10, 10 something years ago like that. And I remember like the week leading up into it, I was like, you know, I already, I, of course, knew about like, you know, the popular Earth, Wind & Fire song. But I was right. like, man, like I need to spend like this week going in, like in my car. It was, I had nothing but their music on because I wanted to make sure that like I recognized most, if not all the songs that they did. Right, right. And I think that's when they that that's when I rediscovered um, how much I loved "Can't Hide Love." I haven't heard that song a lot up to that point. Like I've heard it a long time ago when I was a kid, and right. then I just didn't listen to it for like fifteen years. And then I was right. like, I forgot how amazing. And I I just kept it on repeat the entire week. I didn't even get to the other songs. I understand. I understand. <laughs> I mean, it's it's amazing. They were just in um NJ Pack and Prudential within the last couple of years. Wow. And, yeah. Um, and Philip Bailey can still hit those notes. Oh, man. And three of the original members are still there. Philip Bailey's son is in the group. Wow. And so, okay. um, but, you know, the the energy, the performance, I mean, just a massive number of hits. And so white people do a good job of supporting their mm -hmm. artists as they age. Mm -hmm. We should make sure that we have, fortunately for you, had a chance to see one of our greatest groups ever. And, you know, Frankie Beverly is another artist that I really like. Mm -hmm. Frankie Beverly and his group still perform. He may have retired now. At least that's the rumor anyway. Mm -hmm. But when he would be around, when Earth, Wind & Fire would be around, different groups, we don't, Funkadelic, I was on a cruise. Funkadelic was on a cruise. Oh, wow. So having an opportunity to see some of our legends is the same way <clears throat> that Mick Jagger and all of those folks who, 
may not necessarily be able to <clears throat> perform as well they did, but yeah. people just want to go back and reminisce about what it was like yeah. to hear them when they were really great. And so I saw Earth, Wind & Fire at, in Philadelphia easily 30 years ago. Wow. And um, they had all kind of stuff in their show, man. It was just absolutely incredible to see. I saw Stevie Wonder. I would always drove all the way to D.C. in the early 80s to see Stevie Wonder. He had an outdoor concert. They were giving him the Human Kindness Award in D.C. Oh, it was a beautiful day, man, like 80-something degrees, man. There's thousands of people out. Drove to D.C. and back same day to see Stevie. Mm. And so, uh, you know, uh, when we get highly motivated, fam, then, you know, I had the opportunity to see Grover just before he died. Okay. Um, he was here in Jersey mm. and uh, he was performing with Alex Bunyan. And um, it was a dark, rainy, dreary night. I said, uh, you know, I'm not going to go. Within the next few months, Grover was at one of the television stations, bent over the tire shoe, had a heart attack and died. Wow. I was like, wow. Um, so, you know, we never know what the universe intends for us, brother. So when we have the opportunity to, one of my mentors told me something that I try to live by. We can be on the scene of human history. We should do it. Mm, wow. Yeah. That's about that legacy thing you were just talking about. How, mm -hmm. how, um, and I like you said, everyone, every, I think you said everyone has a legacy and now it's a matter of how, like how impactful it is and what kind of legacy it is. Right. Exactly. Precisely. What kind of le legacy? Yeah, mm -hmm. and that's really good stuff. Let me ask one more question, and then we're gonna wrap up. So, okay. last question I have for you is: What would you say? And it might be what you said just now, um, but if not, you can you can tell me if it's something different. What would you say is like the the best piece of advice that you ever received? Hmm. Um, be proud of who you are, and be proud of what you do. Mm -hmm. And so um, growing up, all of us, you know, would go through different things, trying to figure out who we are. And, you know, I grew up in Plainfield. And so 1967 is the quote unquote riot of rebellion in Plainfield. Yeah. And that really helped to change the trajectory of my life. That's one of the things I write about in the book that, um, you know, my mother had me listen to Malcolm X records when I was very young. And I first got racially profiled in elementary school. So I got racially profiled in elementary school, 67, I'm watching this rebellion take place in Plainfield. I'm listening to Malcolm X, the last poets and a bunch of different things. And so the cultural and political circumstances kind of directed me toward Africana studies, mm -hmm. kind of directed me towards being, you know, whatever way I could participate in community activists and other events. And so, um, and so just, Understanding and Africana studies helped me to be clarified who I am individually and part of a collective. And I think that when we understand who we are individually and being part of a collective, then, and that when people are racist or discriminatory towards me, they don't even know me. They're just judging me by what they, how I appear, right? right. And so then at some point we have to build up enough self-esteem not to allow the negative stereotypes people have about us to influence who we are. So. When we become clear about who we are, when we become determined to be proud of what we do, bro, we just keep on moving. Like, you know, no matter what obstacle gets in the path, like, listen, I'm going to find a way to work around through, over, under, whatever it has to get done. And so when we get clear, when we get that level of clarity, when we get that level of determination, my father told me when I was very young that I was hard headed. 
what I realized much later is that hard-headed is just another way of saying determined. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to tell my dad that I've heard that word a lot when I was getting hard-headed. So, bro, you have to be determined. Yeah, I love that. Well said, well said. Man, so let me just say this, that I'm really super appreciative of you taking some time out. Um, and, you know, this this is this is very, very it was a very inspiring conversation and just appreciate everything that you stand for, what you've done and just the, the work that you're doing right now, the impact that you're having, like you mentioned in, in the student in your students' lives. Um, and, you know, we, in, obviously your children, right? Me having gone to, to school with your second youngest with Imani and, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a story that needed to be told. And thankfully, you know, it, it's being told right now um you know in the form of your book and i just yeah i'm just super appreciative of you so i want to say thank you for taking the time out and uh let my viewers know actually if there's anywhere that they could reach out to you on your instagram or, or website or anything like that absolutely and so anybody that's interested i would be you know very open to the idea of having some additional conversations doing presentations to book clubs you know just book club us to get the book and have a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. They can reach me at www.babaslegacy.com. Babaslegacy.com, information about the book, email, phone, all the different ways to reach me are there. And I would really be appreciative of any kind of conversation because raising our children, building that village, to help raise our children is something that is critically important. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I do think that um, having conversations about how we come together collectively as a community to make sure that our children have the safe space that they need to be successful in their lives. So important. Well said, man. Thanks again, my brother. You have a wonderful rest of the night and a run wonderful rest of the week. And we'll, uh, we'll be talking, okay? Look forward to it. Thank you, All Kevin. Right. Appreciate the opportunity. Anytime. You take care now.